this is Kat. This is Phoebe. We're Feminine Chaos. Welcome to our very wholesome world. Our wholesome, most wholesome episode. Um, mm-hmm. here Whole grain. And uh, Phoebe, I hear that you've you've got some wholesome experiences to share. Oh, yes. So I had a wholesome argument this morning insofar as it was like, I was going to tweet it all out and it was just too complicated to convey um, in that format. And I think it fits with our wholesomeness theme for today. So I, um, as like we, we drop our daughter off um, at daycare and bring our dog. Right. Because I mean, you know, it's the easier way to combine with a walk. So basically the point is I was walking with an empty stroller, large stroller, cause it's uh, sort of snowy here in Toronto and, um, and our small dog. Okay, so walking down the street. And this woman with two, a white woman, since one always must in these circumstances, you know, any anecdote you need the full, like, I need, here's her um, income bracket, her, I've used calipers on her face, whole deal. Anyway, a, a woman with two large dogs, um, cute. I was like admiring how cute they were. Anyway, um, stood aside, like went into the road, like to where like cars are parked to let me pass, I guess. But one of the two dogs was kind of like, it had like that mini muzzle thing. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And strap around and was sort of like, not quite snarling at my dog, but just like seemed a little like, it might eat my dog kind of stance. Mm -hmm. So I, I wasn't worried at all about like my dog's safety or anything, but I just like turned to my dog and I said, don't bark. Because, you know, when that happens, my dog tends to bark and I didn't want, Mm -hmm. you know, a whole thing. And as I'm like, just after I say this to my dog, this woman says to me, you're welcome. (laughs) So I was very confused. So I I said to her, I said, what was that about? (laughs) Because I just wanted to know because it was so weird. And she said, I got out of your way and you didn't say thank you. And I wanted to be like, you didn't give me a chance. I was telling my dog not to bark. I was trying, I thought you'd appreciate a dog not barking at your dogs. Sorry. Oh my goodness. I was not quick enough. Um, but now there's a woman who I probably am going to pass on the street like every other day now um, who hates me because of passive aggressive Canadian mystery feelings that I cannot unpack. This woman is going to become your nemesis. Yeah, like, but I don't even know what happened. Like, I I hadn't asked her to, like, step into the road. She didn't have to. It's a sidewalk. She could have just passed. Like, I, I guess it's still this thing. I think people are very on edge with the new lockdown and are kind of returning to the kind of, like, early lockdown when people didn't get, or, like, first round of lockdown where people didn't really get that you can't really get coronavirus from passing somebody on the street. And so they, yeah. like, step into the road and make a big point of, like, I'm going to, like, risk getting run over so that we don't give each other coronavirus. And it's, like, you don't have to step into the street. That's actually, like, a really, like, unnecessarily, like, if there's cars at, like, rush hour, as this was um, even now. Yeah. yeah. I just, I, I think it's odd to, like, to step into the road with your dogs. Um, it strikes me as a choice. You know mm-hmm. that that you that you make that you don't need to be thanked for. Um, I frequently mm-hmm. press you know press my dog who is extremely large and tends to lunge and snarl, um, especially at children, which is like a real crowd pleaser. Uh, he's because he's really afraid of them. Um, 
he, you know, I, I press him to the side of the road, we'll step off the curb, or like if there's a retaining wall next to us, I'll bring him over to it if we're passing somebody who I think might set him off. And, uh, you know, I just focus on him and I really don't expect to be thanked for this. Um, you know, yeah, for- I feel like it's everybody just deals with their own dog in these circumstances or dogs in, in this woman's case. And it just, it was suddenly a whole thing. And I was, and I would have even said thank you just because I know how people kind of are. Um, sometimes like this woman seemed like a little, maybe a little on edge or something, but it was just like, I mean, to explain the size of this stroller, like it is very large, not to be all like, it's not a, it's one of these many items that if I would have seen it in New York, I would have thought, oh, status symbol, blah, blah, blah. But here it's like, because of the like five foot layer of ice you have for like six months. And yeah, you know, it is, I was not in a position to maneuver even an empty stroller and a yes, small, but pretty um, strong willed dog into the road. Like that, and there wasn't even a gap there. Like it didn't, none of it made any sense. And like, it was just weird. Like I genuinely did not know what was even going on. It was just so strange. And this, you're welcome. And I was like, okay okay it was weird but it was wholesome though it was wholesome in a weird way yeah i mean it sounds like a wholesome a wholesome start to what will eventually disintegrate or or, um, decline into an all-out war of attrition i'm looking forward to the anecdote several months from now where after you guys have been passing each other in the street repeatedly um finally in the spring you each come out of your houses and just brawl on the sidewalk (laughs) Well, it could be a brawl, but it also seems like um, maybe like something that could start a, a multi-generation grudge um, that could lead to many murders. I don't get it. It's also this whole like Canadian thing of like, there's something simmering. This is like what Canadians have told me about, because I'm mystified by this, but people are very like, I guess it's similar to like in British culture, people being kind of like reserved, but like there's a lot simmering under the surface. Um, and I just don't get it as a New Yorker. I'm just like, I'm just like, what do you want? Like, what's this about? Like, what's going on? Um, yeah, one day I'll acclimate, but it, it's not right. going to happen today. This reminds me of that um, Eddie Izzard. Uh, re- excuse me. <laughs> it's fitting. <laughs> don't, conversation. don't bark. Uh, You're welcome, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> It is a routine where he describes like English cinema as people, you know, sort of walking quietly into rooms where two people are talking and saying, oh, I, I did not. (laughs) I think that's right, though. I think that's right. Yeah. He's going to bark again. Winston, you're making the podcast bad. (laughs) All right. So to, um, to get to the meat of today's episode, what are we talking about? We are talking about two um, sort of wholesomeness topics, um, one of which is going to be my article about um, people having grudges against each other on British TV and then murdering each other. But I think first we're going to talk about uh, former President Barack Obama's incredibly wholesome anecdote from his, which I, of course, now do not have in front of me on the computer, um, but if I Google o- Obama Foucault, I think I will get to it pretty quickly. Oh, yes. You know, to my, to my great distress, uh, having read this anecdote, I immediately pulled down the hope poster from my wall. I set it on fire. Um, I grabbed my, my copy of Dreams of My Father. I set that on fire. Um, 
had my I Voted sticker from 2008 set on Did you, did you retroactively go with Romney? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I actually, you want to make I, sure to have done that. I did. I, tra- I traveled back in time to vote for his opponent because Obama... And I'm like practically sobbing as I as I reveal this information. I hope so because that's the only appropriate reaction to anything that happens. He was a woke fish. Okay, so oh, I, I found God. the passage. I found the passage um, <laughs> from his new book, um, which may or may not be a Christmas present for somebody. So, um, spoiler alert! If you're although whatever. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> looking. So here's the passage. Looking back. It's embarrassing to recognize the degree to which my intellectual curiosity those first two years of college paralleled the interests of various women I was attempting to get to know. Marx and Marcuse, so I had something to say to the long-legged socialist who lived in my dorm. Fanon and Gwendolyn Brooks for the smooth-skinned sociology major who never gave me a second look. Foucault and Wolfe for the ethereal bisexual who wore mostly black. As a strategy for picking up girls, my pseudo-intellectualism proved mostly worthless. I found myself in a series of affectionate but chaste friendships. Okay. Are you... Now, should I have trigger warnings you for this? Um, I mean, I'm mostly just preoccupied with the desire to change our podcast name to The Ethereal Bisexual. Oh my goodness. It's just, that's such a... So, all I'll say is that so many people in my timeline have that in their bio now. That it's like, and I've seen somebody referred to their dog as a long-legged, like some sort of, I think it's a whippet as a long-legged socialist. Like, it's just, <laughs> this passage, it's, yeah, I don't think Trump could have written it. <laughs> and I I don't really think it was ghostwritten either. It's just a hunch I have. I feel like this is, it's a very um, fun passage, like, as literature and seems like a reminder of the differences between different um, presidents in the you know, it's more the kind of like French style of like, if you're going to be a leader of a country, you have to also be able to write. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I 100% believe that this is, you know, pure uncensored Obama. And is it upsetting? Are you are you triggered by this? Are you going to cry? Does it remind you of that time when a man pretended to read a book? And that was the worst thing or not even pretended he actually read these books right so it's not that he was like sitting with the book like upside down like in front of him to make some sort of (laughs) to be like and like a comic book hidden inside of course of course Um, Um, am I gonna cry about this I mean you mean more than I already have because it's just been like uncontrollable weeping for hours I would would imagine Um, so I mean all I can think is that once I pretended to like Don DeLillo, um, <laughs> you know, and, and and know who it was, I eventually did read it, um, mm-hmm. did read him. But, you know, this was early, early days in mm-hmm. um, flirting with a guy who I wanted to continue paying attention to me. And I just kind of didn't have the heart to explain that I didn't know who Don DeLillo was. And so I was, <laughs> you know, he said, you know, I think you'd, I think you, you seem like a, person who reads DeLillo and I was like oh yes that is indeed that is indeed what I am wow and now let us kiss um oh my goodness so you know yeah I I obviously I I should probably go apologize to that guy because I I basically raped him well that so here's the thing so like all things online you know a few people emerged to say that this was a violation of 
consent did so somebody replied on twitter when i think i or we were discussing this um before was something about like do people actually think this well does the whole world no most people haven't even seen this um a few people did sort of chime in with tweets along the lines of this reminds me of when men like uh the woke fishing right when they like uh like you said like when the men like you know change or pretend to have one type of politics um that they don't have to get into the proverbial pants of a woman they're interested in um and that this is that basically like deception is never okay you know and this in turn evoked uh it's sort of like merged or somehow like um converged that's the word i'm looking for with a previous whole twitter controversy based on a very nice seeming canadian writer she's one of my mutuals who made an unfortunate tweet about um consent and it not being about her unpopular opinion that it's not consent if you um pretend you want a relationship when you just want a one night stand and you have that one night stand that that's a violation of consent. So these whole thing, these things kind of converged, right? Like these topics. So then the question is, did Obama, so Kat, this is my question for you. Did Obama violate consent by reading books in, in college? I mean, obviously I think the answer to that is no. And also that it's I am a going to agree ridiculous with you. <laughs> question. But I actually want to talk about uh that that tweet, which I have not I've not been able to stop thinking about. It's it's a weird one. And I feel bad for the woman at the start of it, because like I think at this point either she knows how silly it was or she has her very wrong view and is gonna you know hold her ground on it but it was it was very wrong it it was a very yeah. incorrect what's video. sort of fascinating to me okay well I mean there's so much that's fascinating to me but I want to read the tweet verbatim because of the like just phenomenally bizarre scenario it envisions as a, as a prerequisite for making this moral judgment about whether the sex was consensual so she writes if you have sex with someone knowing full well it is going to be a one-time thing, but the other person believes they are embarking on a relationship, I don't think you can really consider the sex consensual, although this opinion gets me into trouble at dinner parties. Um, so I'm, like, I, I have not been able to stop thinking about the specific scenario that is described in this tweet where one person knows full well that this is never going to happen again. It's just a one-time thing, just notch in the bedpost. And the other person genuinely believes that it's the start of a relationship. And I keep thinking about this, like this is the plot of the movie Cruel Intentions, <laughs> but it doesn't, I don't think happen in real life. I think you would be really hard pressed to find these two perspectives represented in one sexual encounter. Mm-hmm. Unless either the person who knows they're having a one-time only thing is being intentionally deceitful in the manner of Ryan Philippe in Cruel Intentions, um, <laughs> or if the person anticipating the start of a relationship is completely goddamn delusional. So, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> go on. Go on. I want to hear um, the full. Right. So, I mean, I think that this was 
I mean, already basically she kind of created this straw man to knock it down. But then this tweet ended up being sort of the subject of a like a more expository essay by Louise Perry in Unheard, which I don't know if you want to already move to talking about that or if you want to talk about the tweet a little bit more first. Um, well, maybe just a little bit more about the tweet, although we can then talk about, I mean, it kind of um, segues into the article. But yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's a lot of like, so there are a lot of like sort of confounding factors. I don't even know if I'm using that expression correctly, but whatever. There are a lot, there's lots going on. Okay. So if you're talking about very young people, I think there are people, you know, young men and young women, probably mostly young women who don't sort of know the rules of the game of, you know, like that you don't really know somebody you've just met. And I think that that is a life lesson that everybody kind of has to learn for themselves. Um, and that there's a time in life, like some people are just kind of with it in that way and maybe always kind of get that. But I think it's pretty common for like a 17 year old, 18 year old, 20 year old, maybe even to not know that and to just kind of think, oh, well, this person said kind things to me even if they weren't intentionally misleading at all, and then be shocked that this person does not want to like, you know, settle down with you. I think there's another factor. So I, it's not that it's a rational thing to think, but I think there's a life stage when people do think along those lines. I think it's very rare and pretty pathological for like a 30 year old or even like a 25 year old to think like that. Um, but yeah, so that's one thing. Um, another is that like, yeah, this question of whose consent is even violated. And this came up um, in responses to the original tweet that like, if you insist that somebody form a serious relationship with you just because they slept with you once, isn't that a violation of their consent? Yes, it would certainly would be. But also like, I think there's this whole notion and this gets to, this is where it segues into the article of like, with gender and what women are expected to sort of say they want. And I think women are very much expected probably especially young women, but probably women of all ages to some extent, to claim to want a relationship, whether or not they do, whether or not they do with that particular man. And men are very much expected to imagine that that's what women want. And it's like a woman who is disappointed that something didn't work out might feel like sort of, but I was supposed, might, might sort of get in this mindset of like, but he was supposed to be my husband, even if she like at the end of the day, doesn't even want a husband and certainly, or at least certainly doesn't want this guy to be her husband. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the unheard essay, which I, um, we should probably move on to in just a second is that, you know, it, uh, it presupposes, uh, excuse me, it presupposes that this is the case for women, um, across the board and that, um, in a way, in a way that reminds me a lot of kind of 1990s era discourse surrounding sex. But I want to return um, to what you just said about the notion that if, um, you know, it's that it's equally deceitful to claim that you're down for, you know, a one time or a casual thing when what you're really hoping is to convert the sex into a relationship. Because I think that that's really interesting. Like, that was such a common perspective. And um, I used to see it when I was writing this advice column um, that there was this 
kind of sense in the air that had to be, you had to explicitly correct it, um, that it was only deceitful if you were, if it was going one way, you know, mm-hmm. that like if you were pretending, if you pretended to be interested in a relationship in order to have sex with somebody that was bad. But if you pretended to be okay with casual sex and hid the fact that you were hoping it uh, would turn into a relationship, that, that this was perfectly acceptable. And I used to have to say like, no, it's actually not like you're, you know, you're still being dishonest and you're setting yourself up to be very unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think, I think there's just this like thing where, and I think this, it's shocking how much this persists and this really like now, like we are going to soon have to just switch over to talking to the unheard article because it like I'm thinking about as always something from the Savage Love cast but where Dan Savage talks about how for a lot of gay men serious relationships emerge from hookups and I I always think like and for a lot of straight people too it's just not going to be openly discussed it's just that when people tell their you know meet cute story it's not going to be you know that even if that's a hundred percent how things started because it's just there's this convention that that it that couldn't be something that would happen you know it's like it's sort of too crude to mention in that sort of comp you know what I mean like I think mm-hmm. I think there's just this kind of performance of like rom-com like they were friends you know it was Har- when Harry met Sally you know he pursued her she resisted a bit but not you know not in a sort of she didn't consent way but you know she just she just wanted to be friends you know and then like he then she noticed actually that she does love him or something like that and like you see this even still in like new york times wedding announcements um you haven't seen that movie in a long time have you <laughs> no they have sex right i haven't seen that they, movie in a long time they do it's they do, um right? it's, sorry yeah it's a little more complicated than that but i um, have but, seen it a movie but like yeah it's probably we're talking like 20 years i i don't know um, it wasn't it wasn't the worst summary. It just was slightly um, redacted. It was probably as um, as precise as a 20 year gap could get. Yeah. Anyway, just this notion that like you have to sort of I, I think there's a difference between what women want in terms of seriousness and what women are sort of um, expected to say they want in terms of seriousness like especially very young women um and i think that that maybe like gets us a little bit to um louise perry's article in unheard an essay called is casual sex immoral there's a reason so many feminists are unhappy with the sexual status quo so kat is there a reason and what is that reason um, well, according to Perry, the reason is that feminism has told young women that consent is sort of the be-all, end-all gold standard for uh, navigating the sexual realm, and that young women have adopted this wholesale as the only standard by which to measure their personal sexual satisfaction or their personal emotional satisfaction with sexual encounters. Um as though, you know, when you, when you <laughs> meet a, meet a guy and are sort of trying to outline your desires, um, a cabal of liberal feminists bursts into the bedroom and is like, you better not catch feelings <laughs> for him. 
That does that not happen in your bedroom frequently that the, this cabal appears? You know, like actually every time, and it's weird. I think my husband hired them. <laughs> but that wouldn't be. But that would be okay. No, but that would be okay because of the passage that says, for instance, the neutral or even positive attitude that liberal feminists take towards transactional sex leads them to support the decriminalization or legalization. Blah blah blah. Okay, um, so there's one passage of this article that just completely like. I think it's true, this whole thing about consent as supposedly this like a magical key to everything that that I think is a, a correct insight, if not an entirely original insight. But, you know, I think that's true. But there's a passage. Gosh, I disagree seemed... with that. But well, yeah, but finish. Your well, thought. I mean, I, I'm saying that I think that consent has become very central to conversations. But where um, where I really disagreed with the article was specifically like, I mean, some later places, too, but specifically this part. So I'm quoting from the article. Within the last 40 years, sex positivism has been remarkably successful within academia and the media to the point that it is now the dominant ideology among liberal feminists who are themselves a dominant sect. The moral minimalism that comes from holding... Okay, whatever. So that whole that passage, right, what we were talking mm-hmm. about? I do not think that this is currently anything. I think this was something pre-Me Too, maybe even like a couple of years especially, like certainly before the whole discussion of um, campus sexual assault. This has not been like, what is this sex positive feminism that is dominating in 2020? What? (laughs) Like that? No, that's that's not a thing. No, it was, but I think it was a thing. 10 years too late. Exactly. I think, and I'm going to ignore the fact that a probably like 40 pound squirrel is facing me, like staring, like doing like a sort of staring me down at the window because I have not consented to that during a podcast, but it's pretty funny. It's like, you want to see my nuts? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay, I'm going to try to focus on the conversation at hand, despite that being a a really shockingly enormous squirrel. Um, But yeah, I mean, that, I think it was a thing. So I, I do think that that existed. And I think there are still like elements of it. So like here I'm thinking of like another Savage Love cast um, where it was something about like some woman called up to say that she's a religious Jew and does like a ritual bath. Um, uh, she goes to the mikvah, the ritual bath um, after her period. And it was all about like, so that she and her, I forget if it's husband, fiance, something don't like, she seemed kind of secular. It was a very confusing call, but anyway, and Dan Savage was saying sort of like that it's fine to like sort of, you know be intentionally abstinent for periods of time for like sort of like as a sex game but that if you're doing it for these kind of like religious reasons that it's like sexist or something and I guess I was thinking like does everything need to really be shoehorned into this kind of like very specific sex positive ethics that that seemed just there's something about it I'm not articulating well that just seemed like of a moment that's kind of not really this moment if that makes sense but but yeah the the main issue though for us and with this topic is yeah that like this sort of sex positivity as such as described here is not that's not the thing anymore no no and I mean the idea of of consent as being I mean consent is I think much too central to the way that um contemporary feminists talk about sex um, as though it's like the sex is either consensual or it's 
bad or it's good or it's rape. You know, it's basically like once you introduce this framework and then there's the whole enthusiastic consent thing, which I think we've talked about right. before, it places this additional pressure where, you know, the if you if your enthusiasm flags at any moment during the encounter, then you have to worry that maybe like it wasn't consensual anymore. And God, that's a lot of pressure. Um, but yeah, you know, that I mean, clearly that kind of heyday of blinkered sex positivity that was a very sex in the city moment and yeah you know what was interesting about that moment is that it was sort of explicitly described as having sex like a man and mm-hmm. you're at the end you're supposed to sort of say I think you're supposed to conclude that it was a mistake to do this because ultimately it didn't lead to romance like a lasting romance for the women involved but on the other hand you know it doesn't mean that that everything that they were up to before they ended up pairing off was necessarily bad it just didn't go in that direction so there's that um but i wanted to identify another passage from this article which i also think is factually inaccurate um and this one she's she's describing she's talking about the tweet that we already discussed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so again this is perry writing o'neill is correctly identifying a problem the fact that horny and unscrupulous men fuck boys in contemporary slang will regularly (laughs) manipulate naive women into casual sex that leaves the women feeling wretched um okay Oh, yeah. I also I'm glad you bring up this passage. I don't think that she is. I mean, I don't don't think Perry is right. I don't think O'Neill was correctly identifying this problem. I don't think this problem is a thing. This is like O'Neill didn't even didn't even say that this is how it goes. She didn't make it gendered, which I think is also like a leap that it might have been. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it lends itself to that interpretation. But this is pretty this is basically saying, so this passage um, from Perry is basically saying that women always, when they have sex, are wanting something other than sex. Yes, and exactly. It's, well, this, so this is the backlash. I, maybe the problem with this article is that it's presenting itself as a new observation when it's in fact, it like in 2017 or whatever it was with, you know, Me Too, like this has been going on, like this, this redefinition of female sexuality, especially female heterosexuality as like this victimhood situation in all contexts. Like this is not, you don't need somebody coming in 2020 to say that. Like that is, that has been the overcorrection that we've been living with for the last few years. I don't know I what- even even before that. So I want to well, like yeah. actually go oh, back Oh yeah, and definitely say- with the campus- the campus sort of prelude. So here, so here's what this reminds me of um, is like immediately post sexual revolution, you get into the eighties and you get into like the rules era of dating mm-hmm. and sex. And it's this common wisdom that men have to trick women into having sex by promising right. relationships and right. women have to wrap men mm-hmm. into relationships by promising sex. And it's like, it's, it's, you know, that goes back to this whole idea that that we can't seem to really get away from, that women don't want sex. They don't like sex. They want mm-hmm. relationships and they'll have sex to get a relationship. Um, and that's like dead center in this paragraph, like this, this yeah. insane thesis that well, I feel it's, like- It's trying to be sort of like telling the difficult 
truths uh, that are like people are more conservative than you think. And it's like, I don't know. Are they though? Like, it, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I think some people, men and women, and, you know, are probably like, you know, people all want different things, right? As individuals, people all want different things. And, you know, it doesn't mean that every single person who has casual sex actually wants to be doing that, but certainly plenty do. And to decide that half the population doesn't seems a little odd, but I'm thinking still about this idea of consent and like what seems to have happened is with me too. And the sort of things that preceded it is this kind of like doubling down on consent. So instead of like, if there's consent, anything goes, it's like, yeah, if there's consent, anything goes, but consent, and this brings us back to the Obama passage, consent then, especially like in opposite sex relationships, gets defined as something that's basically impossible, that like could yeah. not happen. There's no, there's, there's practically speaking, like no circumstance when it's okay to hit on somebody, no circumstance when it's okay to want a, a situation to be more sexual than it is. There's no circumstance when somebody asks you for coffee and they'd be okay with it becoming something more but also if it didn't that's fine you know and like, you're not allowed to put your best foot forward no no you certainly you, you have to go to a date looking you know as shabby as you possibly can right you've got to fart openly the entire time um that's you've got that's how bring... Ivanka you know that's how Ivanka won over Jared right probably <laughs> but but she would have blamed it on him he would be like i'm the only one here i know it's you no. exactly the start of all true love stories um yeah i mean it's just like i think that that's what's happened is that consent has gotten in some quarters whatever um defined in this sort of like incredibly broad way to involve like unless you have some kind of like two people are put in separate rooms and have to, you know, write up a statement of what they want. And it happens to be exactly the same by coincidence. And then, then it's okay. Or it's like, ah, it's just so bad. Cause like if there's online dating already and like apps making it worse and now there's lockdown and like not being able to interact face to face in the normal way, making it worse. But, but I do think it's like the sex positive there, there's like a sort of sex positive and sex negative way of treating consent as the only thing that matters both of these treat consent as the only thing that matters, but in incredibly different ways. Yeah. <laughs> I take that as an endorsement. <laughs> woof, woof. Um, yeah. You know, that, that basically I think sums it up. There's also, you know, the, the issue of what consent has come to mean. People imagine that they're, it's like, I consent to have a great time, you know, and, and that's not how it works. You know, you know, you can, you consent because you're not, there's no guarantee that it's going to be a great time. Mm -hmm. um, well, you've written is, about this. You've written about I this did, whole, the yeah. whole thing where um, you've written about this, where people, where women will like be disappointed with an encounter and sort of retroactively say that the only possible reason it was disappointing was because they were not in, you know, okay with it and how it does kind of like tap into the kind of like Victorian or whatever thing. And like, I think that's, I think it's, it's complicated, right? Because like, sometimes people are retroactively sort of better understanding things, but other times people are retroactively um, simply like, unable to just say something was bad, in a sort of disappointing sense of bad and not in a sort of should never have happened. I mean, ideally, everybody who's married feels like the things that happened before they were married were like, 
suboptimal. You know what I mean? And to some degree, like you have to have some, it can't like, who's going to say that every single experience of their life was positive. Like, how would you then? Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't even quite make yeah. sense with how people are. It's something, there's something too in the unwillingness um, or inability, I think increasingly for um, women, and it's not like they're encouraged to do this either, which is part of the problem, but to look back at a disappointing um, or genuinely upsetting encounter and say, and, you know, and pinpoint a choice that they made and say, I really wish I hadn't done that. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I, like I recognize that I made a decision here and I, I really wish I hadn't done it. Um, instead it's, you know, I'm so traumatized that this happened to me. And there's this sort of agency stripping that have that, that women do to themselves that I think, you know, they're encouraged to do to themselves because we are still as a society, not that comfortable with the notion of women making, like we're okay with them making their own choices, but only if the choices are good and make them happy. It's like, if you make a choice that you later feel ashamed <laughs> of, then it's, yeah. um, you know, we're not, we're not yeah. super comfortable with that. And we don't encourage women to sort of, sit with their shame in this stoical Mm -hmm. way and kind of work through it, which, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think probably in order to make things better on this front, you know, that's something that women need to be able to do, even though it's incredibly unpleasant. But also on a sort of positive note, I think the problem, and I'm not by any means the first to observe this, but the problem with putting consent at the center of everything is, it is by implication, this question of, is the woman consenting to what the man has suggested and without ever any sort of like allowance for that women might want to suggest things themselves and all the myriad reasons they are sort of encouraged not to do that. And it's like that whole realm of things gets completely ignored and that like the most a woman could do is say yes is so, Oh, so central to this. It's bleak. And it's just like, it doesn't seem to really quite, match with like how actual people live it's like this whole sort of like public performance both in like wedding announcements and in discussions of me too type issues it's this whole performance of it only ever going one way of the sort of person pursuing whether they're pursuing in a sort of sort of menacing way or just in a wholesome way a la obama um it's always like way (laughs) or whatever I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the wedding announcement that starts with a menacing pursuit it's well like, no the bride and groom met when he broke into her house with a knife um <laughs> whenever i think of women and and sort of menacing pursuit I, I just like i keep going back to and i'm gonna hopefully be writing more about this but that avital situation where the complet professor who was supposedly a lesbian fell madly in love with her gay male much younger um and quite attractive student her grad student and like basically just like became full-on like obsessed with him you know sexual harass sexual harassment whatever you know that was a great story we'll we'll put it in the show notes so that people yes because i think that 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 um I love the twist that she doesn't even identify as like somebody who's into men. It's <laughs> just like, for me, that's like why that, that makes the story, especially something that I can't yes. quite spell out right now, love, but yes. Love is love and obsession is obsession. <laughs> well, I just remember okay. that I remember there was some critique of the whole thing where it's like, this isn't really about sex. It's about something else. It's like, no, I think it is actually like that she wants to have sex with 
this graduate student and and doesn't really care that he has a boyfriend and isn't interested or husband isn't interested in her you know in his much older female professor um yeah i don't know can we talk about more wholesomeness though or, or do we have more on i know we could go on with this forever because this is like these are our topics but um yeah, so other wholesomeness. Tell me about murder mysteries, okay. please. So I've been watching a lot of them. Um, I probably watch more um, online or whatever, like online television than is, you know, than one should admit to in polite society, but whatever, I admitted to it in polite society anyway. Um, so I wrote for the Globe and Mail um, here in Canada about watching tremendous amounts of BritBox and how I got a little, you know, like I'd watched so many of these sitcoms from like the, you know, 80s, 90s, whatever. And then like, I needed to watch something new. So I sort of switched over to murder mysteries and why these are actually certain murder mysteries are the best thing to watch during lockdown. So I actually wrote the piece as tends to happen in, you know, in the writing world, like, I think possibly a few months before it appeared. So it was like it appeared during the second lockdown, but it was kind of like certain specific things. I was rereading. I'm like, wait, this refers to stuff that was like in my life that made sense a few months ago. And isn't anyway, it doesn't really matter. The point is murder mysteries, um, like certain ones. So I'm talking about Midsummer Murders. I'm talking about Poirot, Miss Marple and Rosemary and Time specifically um, are just incredibly silly, like these incredibly silly murder mysteries where there's yeah there's lots of death but it's just incredibly like you you are never like genuinely upset and nor are the people in the show when somebody dies and that's kind of like the common ground and what it is to sort of watch this at a time when like so when I wrote this it was really like very much more the time of like if you touch the wrong thing in the supermarket do you die and I think there is just something kind of like weirdly calming about this kind of like controlled world of um, incredibly silly murder. Um, yeah, that's yeah, about it. <laughs> it is soothing. I mean, there's, um, there's, I mean, it's not, and it's not just that it's formulaic, although I think there is that too, you know, that you can kind of settle into the rhythm of it. Is that, I mean, I always felt that, oh, that yeah. was the case with Law and Order, which I would watch just endlessly. I mean, it's formulaic. Um, it's, it can be, so you have to be, so Midsummer Murders has like more than 20 seasons, right? So you have to be maybe like 15 seasons in before you can kind of like reliably predict who did it. And also, so I listened to some interview with one of the writers for it, um, who from like one of the more recent seasons and i think that the way they do it is like they only decide at the very end who the murderer is going to be so you can't actually know like it's not there's no clue like there's no way to know so sometimes it will seem really random and they just make up some whole backstory that doesn't make any sense but you know the mm -hmm. grudge but yeah it's it's certainly there are patterns yeah Yes. Well, I wanted to quote. Um, I wanted to quote my favorite, uh, my favorite portion of your piece, and I just have to open it in an incognito window because I'm not signing up for an account at the Globe and Mail in order to read this. In the meantime, can I say one more thing about? Oh yeah, please project? continue. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. I, well, so I, look. I will say that another thing that was kind of fun and different to do is to try to write about um, culture without like 
doing the whole is it problematic is it not problematic thing but sort of like referencing it so that was kind of um an interesting exercise because I, I think that like often culture writing either sort of pretends that that whole conversation isn't happening which is I think a, a valid choice you can do or just launches full into like do we like is this problematic or is it actually good and like having to have a verdict and um, as though it are- can be one or the other right there's uh yeah yeah <laughs> um so I mean I there there was so much in this piece that I really really liked um I I, I loved the section on on grief and how it basically is a blip on the radar and there's almost a sort of stoicism built in to the the fabric of you know of midsummer but I mean also of you know like this type of show in general where you know as you pointed out like there'll be this gruesome killing but then you know the gardeners must they, they sort of acknowledge it and then they're like but of course the work has to go on you know we have to mm-hmm. keep gardening um but um i i enjoyed this nod to the you know returning to the notions of consent and sex um midsummer is the ultimate in quality and quantity 21 seasons and counting there are the usual massive country estates and family rivalries but it's somehow sillier than its peers it's also the most creative with murder methods a victim might be flattened by a block of cheese strangled by automatic doors or pelted with wine bottles the red hair and side plot center on what the show calls in a non-judgmental way sexual deviancy aka the whips aren't just being used in the posh family's stable this is no, all like I, from the show. This is all completely like these are. I know. I I think it's such it encapsulates so perfectly, um, you know what's uniquely fun about this stuff. You know that there is this creativity, and also um, kind of going back to what you were just talking about, that there's no within the show itself need to interrogate like the problematicness of what it's doing. There's no self-aware little wink to the fact that they know they're being passe or unwoke or what have you, um, which is something that I think you see. So you, you see that in television today, like there's so often this little wink to like, we're not being totally progressive here. Um, or there'll be like this throwaway joke about white men failing up or something like that. And it's mm-hmm. just, um, it's supposed to, I think, allow the the show to go down easy um, for this imagined progressive audience who might have otherwise been uncomfortable without the sort of privilege disclaimer. I mean, that's basically how it functions. But what it actually, it's just jarring. Um, mm-hmm to have this to have these moments in the show. Yeah, Midsummer so, so Midsummer did have like in the history of the show there was a sort of behind the scenes um I forget if it was like the show's producer or something um a few years ago had said sort of like had defended the use of mainly white casts as this is about these English villages and that's how they would be. But then in more recent years, maybe it's a different producer, I'm not sure. Um, it's certainly a different Barnaby, who's also a white man. So that's not really um, the thing. But now the show is much more racially diverse. And it's basically not really discussed, though. Like the fact that, you know, like occasionally there's some kind of like 
nod to the cultural specificity. Like I think once an Indian man was a yoga instructor. So there was, you know, a little, a little nod to like, it wasn't simply like the actor playing, you know, sexual deviant number 502 was not white but um they have that many of them in a single episode (laughs) sometimes it seems like that but yeah i mean i i think i think that the sort of the just if you need to watch shows with some sort of for telling yourself that you are doing some sort of good social justice deed as versus just you know like rotting your brain with television you can tell yourself with Midsommar that basically because you never know who the murderer is or what, or who the murdered is, it's not, there's no pattern where it's like a man, like the, Oh, there's been murder. Well, statistically speaking, it's probably a man. Oh, and it's probably a young woman. Oh, she was probably sexually assaulted before. Okay. It's not that pattern at all. You never know who did it. And my favorite, I think might be, there was one of these episodes where, um, and I always have a new favorite cause I, I like them all basically. But there was one where somebody was like murdered clearly with like somebody's bare hands and it was like clearly strength, you know, like brute strength. And it turns out that the murderer was some very elderly woman who had been in some sort of like military role in her youth and been trained in some kind of like very um elite military way to do this. So she was like so it's like some frail old woman turns out to have been the murderer you know i love this she was an international jar opening champion something like that (laughs) and it's just like because you don't know like because of the mystery because of the way the you know the show works you can't know who did it you can't know who's going to be the next victim on the basis of any sort of identity categories so that kind of brings about a type of equality that does does not feel forced and frankly like if you did not have that if you could know well oh, we we can rule out the women as murderer like what's the point you know like that would be mm-hmm. would make it much less mysterious it's true well i i think it all sounds delightful and i actually did start watching um some episodes of midsummer with my husband and uh, we were we were getting a real kick out of it i think we'll probably continue i hope that they keep going for another 21 seasons and that murderers never stop moving to midsummer perfect same same um do we have anything else to say on these various topics um gosh i would like to wish a goodbye to the very spherical squirrel that seems to have run off um and i would like to thank our subscribers for for bearing with us and um and our very very wholesome episode possibly too wholesome but with a little bit of sex in there but but wholesome sex you can subscribe to feminine chaos at patreon.com slash feminine chaos for early release of our public episodes and also for exclusive content we post at least two patrons only episodes per month we appreciate your support yes and we also appreciate any spreading of the word about our podcast because um our podcast we will humbly say is fantastic but not enough people know about it so yeah yes tell all your friends your family members the people that you are crushing to death with a wheel of cheese before you kill them um exactly and i think this has been feminine chaos that it has until next time (laughs) bye